We, by the way, in June, celebrated 40 years of marriage. We have a little bit about us. We have six children, um, three boys and three girls. And as of January 30th, I think, just a few days ago, our youngest turned 21. And uh, Cheryl and I were sitting in the living room, and I said, sweetheart, do you realize the Lord has helped us get every child to adulthood? I, our oldest, by the way, is 37, about to be 38 this month, and she's 21. So we had a 17-year span. We had four children in six years, and then nine years later, the Lord saw fit to give us another child, and then... Uh, Feeling like she'd be an only child with all the other kids, the Lord gave us a second child. So we are living proof that the story of Abraham and Sarah is true. Okay, we are living proof. You can believe that story. The Bible says Abraham was as good as dead when Isaac was born. So um, here we, I, I just said, honey, I remember praying when uh, our youngest daughter, Mackenzie, was born. I was 44. And I said, Lord, let me live long enough to get her to adulthood. I said, just, I, just let me live long enough to get all our children, you know, to a certain age. And he did answer that prayer uh, with our youngest now. So we're empty nesters, as they call it, you know. All the kids are gone. People ask us, are we lonely? Are we lost? Do we not know what to do with our time? Please don't tell our kids my answer. We're having the time of our lives. <laughs> it's us again after all these years. We raised kids 38 years. Finally, it's us again. We get to choose what pizza we want. Imagine that. We can stay out as late as we want. I mean, all sorts of things. It's, it's a real gift. But the day I remember I decided to marry my wife, we were in school. And I, I, I do have a, a birthday in February, and there was a knock at my door of my dormitory, an all-male dormitory, at about 6 a.m. On a, on a weekday. And, you know, this knocking, and I'm, who in the world is here this early at 6 a.m.? So I went to the door and opened it, and there was no one there. There was, was nobody. And I, but I looked down, and there was a tray in front of me, a food cart. And it had pastry, Danish, it had orange juice, it had hot coffee, it had scrambled eggs, it had bacon, if I remember, or sausage. I'm looking at this incredible breakfast. Where'd this come from? I opened, uh, there was a little note on it. It said, um, happy birthday, Bob, enjoy your breakfast, love, Cheryl. It was at that very moment. I decided I was going to marry her. This was my thinking. If I marry this woman, I will get breakfast in bed every day of my life. <laughs> well, it didn't quite turn out that way. But I have been blessed beyond measure for 40 years. Uh, Cheryl was one of four daughters of a pastor. She was raised uh, in the church in a parsonage and in Michigan in Detroit and later in Flint. And um, the Lord brought us together in school. She knew so much more about ministry, she still does, than I ever did. She, she got a 22-year head start on me in that regard. But I've been so grateful for the companion 
and the fellow worker and the sister and the beloved wife I've had for all these years together. You know, recently, I think maybe it was last year, as the years are starting to get on now, I said to her on my birthday, I said, honey, this is last year, do I look 64? She said, no, sweetheart, but you used to. So um, the, years, the years do add up. Well, this morning, I want to talk about the heart. And the reason I want to talk about the heart is the scriptures talk about the heart. The word heart is used over 900 times in God's word. I think 913 is the exact figure. And what is the heart? Well, the heart is the place God designed in every one of us to give and receive love. God has a heart. We're made in his image. And thankfully, our God has a heart. And what a gracious heart. What a giving heart he has. But as part of the creation, he gave you, he gave me, he gave the person next to you. Everyone you meet today has a heart. But some people have a damaged heart. Some people have what we'll call a broken heart. But I prefer to use the word damaged. They've been damaged in life. And their heart has been wounded by life. Two things will damage our heart, according to God's word. One is sin. Let's just deal with that to start with. The Bible says sin will deceive us. It will harden our hearts. The, the Bible says in Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden. We can harden our heart through rebellion and and through the indulgence in sin and through other things of disobedience, our hearts can be hard. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And Lord, save me, save me, please, from a hard heart, especially a heart damaged by sin. By the way, God can forgive sin, and God can heal a hardened heart. And he's in that business. He's in the heart transplant business. Ezekiel 36, 26. Uh, one of my favorite passages. Um, it's one of those that you could use as a screensaver on your phone or uh, put it on your pad or something else. Put it on the refrigerator door. It, it says this. It says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart. Isn't that a wonderful promise? And a new spirit, I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. So God is in the heart transplant business. And if our heart has been hardened by our choices and our, our, our foolishness and our rebellion, thank God it's not too late. Amen. And even today, some of us might be sitting here saying, why did I do what I did? What was I thinking? And it's cost me so much, and it's, it's built a distance between myself and my family, perhaps, or between others, my husband or wife or my children or parents, whatever. But see, God can give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you, give you a heart of flesh, meaning it's soft. You know, our Lord Jesus diagnosed the reason why relationships fail. He diagnosed what goes wrong in every marriage. Let's just take marriage, but other relationships, it applies there as well. 
What goes wrong? Why do people crash and, and, and clash? Why do they find themselves angry and resentful where they once loved each other and were attracted to each other? Well, Jesus answered that question for us. Matthew chapter 19, if I can have us turn there for just a moment. Our Lord explained why marriages struggle, why marriages are hurt, and, and, and why they may end. In Matthew 19, he was asked by the Pharisees, this was a trick question, actually. They were trying to set him up to say something that they could catch him in. He, they asked him, is it lawful, in verse 3 of chapter 19 of Matthew, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replies. Now, now you have to understand, <laughs> they could have taken this as an insult. Because these were Pharisees. These were people who did nothing but study the Old Testament scriptures. Many of them memorized it from Genesis to Malachi. So he goes, don't you read the Bible? <laughs> don't you read the Bible? <laughs> you know, to these folks, this was, these were fighting words, okay? Don't you read the Bible? He said, if you did, you'd know, and now he quotes Genesis 2.24, that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father, mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So he says, they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. I always tell people, I've been in the church serving on a staff since I was 18. And I've never married anybody. They go, well, well wait a minute. I thought you are in marriage ministry. <laughs> and you're a pastor, well, I've done lots of ceremonies. I've officiated. But I've never married anybody. You know why? Because it says what God has joined together. It doesn't say who Pastor Moeller joined together. See, it's God who joins. I, I'm just there to represent him. Pastor Spencer, just there to represent him. I don't have the power to take two people and make them one. That's a miracle. That's a transformation. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, that God, God initiates when they get married. What, he's, don't let them separate. Well, why then, they said, did Moses command a man, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They go, we're not, we're not buying this. Because it says right in the Old Testament, you, you can do this. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But here, friends, is the designer, the creator, the architect of marriage, here is his explanation of what goes wrong when something goes wrong in a relationship. Moses permitted you to do this because your hearts were hard. He didn't say you can't communicate. He didn't say you don't agree on money. He didn't say sex is a problem. He says you've hardened your heart toward each other. That's why you don't get along anymore. It's why you aren't attracted or why maybe you're attracted to someone else. He said it's a heart problem. See, I tell people this when they come to see us. My wife and I have a marriage ministry where we see people, I'll see people for five days in a row, three hours a day. Now, I'm not a professional counselor. I'm not a therapist. I don't have a state certification. I tell, I'm a pastor. I use spiritual tools to try and help marriages. But what I'll tell people, 
when they come to see him, I'll go, what's the problem in your marriage? On Monday, when they come, we, we see him five days in a row, three hours a day, 15, 15 hours. Well, why don't you see people for just an hour a week and then, you know, next week? Because an hour is just enough time to get mad at each other, right? Amen? You tell each other, this guy, your problems, you're mad at each other. The way home, nobody's talking, right? It's quiet in the car. You said that to him. Well, you said that. Well, we do three hours, and we do five days in a row. And usually we have marriages that come to us that are at the end of the line. I mean, they want a divorce. There's been an affair. There's something going on. And, and, and when they come, it's about game over. It's stage four. But do you know, by God's grace, 75 to 85% of the couples who come to us stay together. Thank you. Praise God. Do you know why that is? Because God softens their heart. I tell them, you're arguing, not getting along, can't agree on spending, you're in debt, whatever the issues, you know, they're all pretty much the same. There isn't that many original sins, right? I tell them, that's the fruit on the tree, my dear brother or sister, that's not the root of the tree. See, a, a, a lot of, a lot of, people trying to help marriage spit it all on the fruit how to quit arguing how to uh, get an agreement you know whatever there's some value but I'm telling you that doesn't really change things because you're just dealing with the fruit on the tree you don't get to the root of the tree bad fruits coming back just a matter of time but you get to the root and everything changes the fruit is new and different because the root is the heart the heart. So, sin hardens our heart. But I want to tell you a second thing that hardens our heart, or, or damages it, okay? It's pain. Pain damages a heart. Pain, sin is what I do. It's my fault. I did it. I've got no excuses. I have to admit before God, I need to confess I did this. I was wrong. But pain is what someone else did to me. Pain is what I didn't sign up for as a child. I didn't ask to have an alcoholic father. Or I didn't have to have an abusive situation. I didn't want to be abandoned or whatever may, you could just fill in the blanks. I didn't sign up for this, but I, I lived through it. And it damaged my heart. The pain damaged my heart. And so as an adult, as much as I might care for my husband or wife, as much as I might want with my fiance or whatever, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, to have a good relationship, we hit a wall. Well, what's that wall? It's the wall that was built of sin and pain when you were a child or a teenager. What kind of damage am I talking about? Abandonment, neglect, abuse, Anger, critical, judgmental. I, in our seminar, we talk about 12 different damaged hearts that Scripture points out. And often we have one or more of those caused by pain. Now, friends, as a pastor for years, I did not understand the role pain played in damaging a heart. I understood sin clearly because I had been taught that. But I didn't understand 
what pain, because see, you cannot repent of pain because it is not a sin to be in pain. So you can't say, Lord, forgive me for my pain. No, you can't be forgiven because it's not a sin. The only thing you can do with pain, you see, sin can be forgiven. Pain has to be healed. The only way to, to, to soften a, a damaged heart that's been wounded by pain is for God to heal it. Now, if you're wondering, Pastor, is this just your latest psychology? Did you read this somewhere? I did read it somewhere, but it wasn't in a psychological textbook or in some popular magazine. I read it in the book of Isaiah. And I'd like you to turn with me for that just a moment to Isaiah. And we're going to talk more about this at the conference. This morning, pastor has graciously allowed me an introduction to what we're going to talk about, and that's all it can be. And I apologize that we cannot go into more depth, but, but time is, is of the essence, as they say. But Isaiah 61, look at this. This is a prophecy regarding the future ministry of Christ. This was Isaiah looking ahead some 600 years to the birth of Christ, to his ministry, and this is what he said. By the way, this is the text that Jesus spoke from in Nazareth where he grew up the first time he came back to the synagogue. You can find it, I believe, in Luke chapter 4. This is, this is his text that Jesus chose, but listen to this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Good news is the gospel. The gospel is that our sins can be forgiven. Praise God. And then he goes on to add this, and I have to confess as a pastor, I didn't see this, I didn't understand it, and I wasn't able to help people who needed help because of it. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. See, so he said, I've come to talk about, Jesus said, I'm coming to deal with sin, but I'm also coming to deal with pain. I'm coming to deal with broken hearts that nobody signed up for, nobody asked that, I don't know anybody that asks that their heart gets broken, particularly as a child or as a teenager. But week after week after week after week, I sit in my office and I listen to a couple and I ask them to tell me their whole life story. I take three hours to listen to each person. Three hours. Tell me your life story. Let's go back to the very beginning. And before that three hours is over, I have heard where their hearts have been wounded where they have been broken, where they have been damaged. I had a young man come to me struggling in his marriage, and he said, um, growing up, my father and my grandfather never referred to me by my real name. They only called me stupid. He said, that was my name at home was stupid. Stupid do this, stupid do that. Just one thing after another, stupid. I've had others. I've had women tell me that some of their earliest recollections is of abuse that went on for years that no one knew about. My friends, that kind of pain will break a heart of a child. Will break a heart. It's not the child's fault but they live with the damage. But see, Jesus came to save us from our sins, 
but he also came to heal our pain. Let's read on in this. It says he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God. Now ask yourself these next, is these sin words or these pain words, what I'm about to read? Is he talking about iniquity or is he talking about hurt? To comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Mourning, grief, despair, those are pain words, brothers and sisters. Those are pain words. He came to bind those up and to heal our hurt. Forgive our sin heal our hurt. And I want to tell you, when God does that, when our Lord Jesus does that in the hearts of a couple, they reconcile. I can tell you, if only one heart softens, it may not make it. If neither do, it's probably not going to happen. But if both do, I have never had a couple in all of these years who did not reconcile when they both softened their hearts. When God forgives their sin and heals their pain, they fall in love again. And they don't want to leave each other. And they don't want to end this. In many cases, it's, it's a new beginning. <laughs> I've had couples, that they get so excited. I don't tell them to do this, but, you know, at some point, they turn, and, and this wall they built in their heart of sin and pain, Jesus is taking it down, and they, they're connecting brand new. It doesn't matter if it's five years. I've had people 50 years come. They get so excited. The, the love between them, their hearts connect. I had one couple get so excited. They, 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 they stood up. They hugged each other. They walked out. And I said, but, but we're not done. They go, yes, we are. And they just went out. They were so happy. They didn't want it. They just had something else. I don't know. They had another agenda. But it wasn't me any longer, and that's just fine. That's just fine. That's, I'm in business to go out of business, okay? Um, I don't want to be needed anymore. I just want people to uh, be able to, uh, to be able to be happy with one another. Um, let me turn this electronic device off. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands, but for how many people has electronic gadgets made your life less complicated? Or more? Yeah. Well, let's get back. Um, a damaged heart. A dam the heart is the heart of every relationship. And Jesus finishes by saying to the Pharisees, you know something? He goes, um, Moses permitted this because your hearts were hard, but he says it was not this way from the beginning. No, my friends, it's not this way from the beginning. God created us to have soft hearts toward each other. And when we do, love is restored. Healing occurs, and people are attracted to each other in a very powerful fashion. It works, by the way, if you have adult children that you might be alienated from. They may have wounded hearts. Their hearts can be healed, and you can be reconciled. It happens in families. This isn't just marriage, but Today, I want to focus on this, if I can. 
Well, you do have an outline this morning, and I suppose I better get to it. I know some people, they're kind of perfectionists, and if they go home with blanks on their sheet, they're going to be troubled all day. They're going, I've got blanks on that sheet. I've got to fill in everything. So we'll see what we can get to. I want to tell you that God's Word tells us there's six different types of loving hearts that we are to offer one another in marriage. There's six different types specifically that are spoken to. And we need each of these for our marriages to prosper and to be all that God would have them to be. The first one is what we're going to call the worshiping heart. The worshiping heart. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about marriage, but then he says something that is very uh, unexpected. He talks about husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and wives, be submissive to your husbands. And then in verse 31 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, 5.31, For this reason a man will leave his father, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. I just read that to you. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking to you about Christ and the church. Friends, after years and years of studying this subject, actually being drawn to it even as a young man, I am convinced that God designed marriage for one overall reason. And it isn't so we can have a companion. It isn't so that we can have children. It isn't so we can have someone meet our needs. Those are all wonderful. God created marriage so that we could illustrate Christ in the church. That's what Paul is saying here. I'm telling you a mystery. The worshiping heart gives and receives love by rejoicing in God's holy presence, is the word. The presence in our marriage. And the key word to remember there is mystery. What's a mystery? It's not like a, 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 a whodunit novel. Uh, it's not Sherlock Holmes. A mystery in the Bible is something only God knows, but he's willing to tell you. God knows something none of us could ever know, except he's willing to tell us. Lo, I tell you a mystery, the Bible says. And the mystery in this case is marriage was created so the world could see how husbands sacrificially love their wives, how wives show extraordinary honor to their husband, the way the church honors Christ, the way the husband lays down his life for his wife. And this shows the world. See, there's not going to be marriage in heaven. You know that? You, you've read that? Jesus was asked about a man who had seven, a woman who had seven husbands. Oh, heaven help her. She had seven husbands. She said, well, whose husband is he going to be in the resurrection? He said, none of them. There, there won't be giving in marriage in heaven. We'll be like the angels. Now you're thinking, why don't they have marriage in heaven if it's so important to God? And it isn't because they don't want fighting in heaven, okay? You know, that would kind of ruin it, wouldn't it? You know, you know, the folks next door, they're arguing again in their mansion. This, is, this, this seems like an eternity, okay? You know, it, it just goes on and on. No, it isn't because God doesn't want arguing in marriage, okay? It's not that. It's that marriage will have fulfilled its purpose. You see, there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. Someday the church, the bride, will be joined with Christ forever 
be the greatest wedding reception of all time, unlike anything you or I have ever been to. And if you're a believer, you're going to be there. I'm going to be there. We won't need marriage because we don't need to illustrate Christ in the church anymore. It will have been consummated. It will have been completed. Okay? But up until then, we Christians have a unique burden, at least a responsibility. We are to reflect Christ in the church in our marriages to the world. When people look at us, they are to say, that, they're Christians. Hmm, what's different about you two? What is it about your marriage? You seem to so love her, you'd do anything. And she seems to so respect you. My goodness, what do you two have going? Well, what we have going is Christ in the church. We've, We've got, and see, and, and, and I don't say this in any way to condemn any of us because we've all struggled in, in, in marriage. Everyone who's ever been knows that there can be struggles to it. But if our marriage is unhappy and filled with anger and dispute and acrimony and all these other things, dare I say, friends, we're preaching false doctrine if we're believers because we're saying Christ is angry at his church and the church, you know, doesn't respect him. That's not true. No, it's so important that worship be at the heart of every marriage because this is high stakes. We're representing Christ in the church to the world. And the key word there is mystery. This is something only God could know, but he's willing to tell us. You know, I don't believe weddings should be a production. I think weddings should be a worship service. You know, so much money is being spent today on production. (laughs) You know, making these weddings incredibly expensive or incredibly this and that. And I'm not one to throw cold water on a great day of celebration because it should be. But friends, marriage is an act of worship. The first miracle Jesus ever did was at a wedding when he turned the water into wine. That was no mistake. It wasn't because the temple venue was booked and he couldn't get somewhere else. I guess I got to use the wedding to do my first miracle. No, he did it because marriage, you see, history starts with a marriage, Adam and Eve. History is interrupted with a marriage, Jesus at Cain of Galilee, where he does his first miracle, and it says they first put their faith in him at a wedding. And history will end with a marriage. In Revelation, with the marriage supper of the Lamb. See how important this is? So let me tell you this about worship and marriage. When you get married, it's an act of worship. Jesus is there. I don't marry people. I said that a few minutes ago. What God has joined together. Now I want to tell you, I like weddings. I, I, I like receptions. Oh, it's some of the best part of this job. Wouldn't you agree, Pastor? Is say amen. Those receptions are wonderful. I went to a reception where they just didn't hold anything back. They had a hors d'oeuvre pyramid. Oh, my goodness. On the bottom row, you know, there was, um, let me see. It was, on the, it was like cheeses and different things. And then you went up, and then they had different fruit. And at the top, they had a chocolate fountain. 
Oh, praise the Lord. This thing, was, this thing was bubbling. It was overflowing with blessing, if you know what I mean, this liquid chocolate. I just wanted to get my mouth underneath there. Just take it in. And you could put strawberries in your chocolate, and you could put angel food or a banana or whatever. I'm loading my plate. I had jumbo shrimp with, with cocktail sauce. I had cheese. I had chocolate. I'm thinking, I like what I do for a living, okay? I'm, I'm eating these hors d'oeuvres. The bride comes up to me. She just kind of quietly moves up next to me. She's in her beautiful gown. She whispers to me in a respectful way. She says, Pastor, our reception is in that room. <laughs> now, remember, I've just loaded up this plate. So I just took another shrimp, and I just quietly went out the door. I like what I do for a living, okay? I do. But you know what? Primarily, it's worship. We're inviting Jesus to be the center of our relationship. On June 16, 1979, my wife and I were joined in marriage. And for our wedding invitation, we quoted Joshua, As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. That was our commitment we made. I don't regret it. We have tried to live that out as imperfectly as we have at times. But if you ask me, would I do it all over again? Yes, I would, and that would be my verse again because there is nothing more fulfilling in marriage than to serve the Lord, to worship him and to make him the center of your relationship. Now, you might be thinking, that all sounds very theological, Pastor, and I'm kind of expecting you to say that. You're a reverend, and you kind of have to talk. No, I'm telling you, worship works. Did you know 36% of Americans will get divorced who get married? But did you know for couples that pray together every day, they pray together, one out of a 1,000 get divorced? Now, you're going from one in three to one in thousand. I like those odds a lot better, don't you? Amen. What's the difference? They pray. <laughs> Cheryl and I try and pray before we ever leave the driveway or we ever go on to our day. It's just been part of our rich, uh, just, just the way we do life, we pray. We prayed this morning, Pastor, for the service and for... We prayed for our being here because we want to lift our day up to the God from the very beginning, no matter what it is. One morning, Cheryl was having her coffee at the table. Now you got to understand, all the kids are gone. It's just us. And she's having her coffee, and usually I come over and I give her this little kiss on the forehead. See you tonight, honey, at 6, and we do our brief prayer. I don't know what came over me. I think it was inspiration. I came up to her. I leaned over. I didn't give her this little kiss. I leaned over, and I kissed her on the lips. And it was a long kiss. It was a luxurious kiss. It, it went on and on and on. Finally, she pushes me away. <laughs> She's going, what was that all about? And I said, honey, do you know how many women wish were, they were married to a man like me? I said, I just want you to think about that while I'm gone all day. Okay. No, what's really important is worship. They did a survey years ago. They asked Americans across the entire spectrum, 
ages, different groups, everybody. They, they, they surveyed a, a genuine cross-section of America, and they, they talked about a rather delicate subject. They asked them about their sexual lives and sexual fulfillment. They interviewed 3,400 people randomly. They spent uh, two and a half hours asking questions. And when they got back the results, and it was at the University of Chicago that where they did this, they looked at it and said, well, somebody goofed here. Somebody messed this up. This study can't be right. And they actually did it a second time. They spent money. I don't know how much to do it a second time. The results were the same. Do you know what they found? Who has the most fulfilling physical relationships in America, the most fulfilling sex lives? They had three characteristics they found. Number one, they're married, not single. Married folk, by far and away, said they were more fulfilled. Number two, though this kind of surprised them, they were monogamous, they weren't swingers, okay? They only had one person, one individual that they were faithful to. The people who said they were the most unfulfilled, by the way, had five or more. But it's the last thing that threw them completely for a loop, which is why they did it over again. The people who said, I am most fulfilled in this area of my life, were highly religious. They go, what? Highly religious? I thought Christians hated sex. I don't know who they're talking to, but they talked to somebody. And no. What they found instead was to be married, to be faithful, and to have God in your marriage brought about the greatest fulfillment. That's no accident. That's because God created this. It's because God's design, and when we worship him and we put his word and we live in obedience, he blesses a relationship. Worship is the beginning place of a marriage. The second heart I want to talk about, we read today, thank you for that beautiful reading from Song of Songs, which is a celebration of a newly married couple. It was probably Solomon and his new bride. But in Song of Songs, I just want to read to you um, maybe one verse here because of time. In Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon as it's sometimes called, in chapter 4, we're talking about these newlyweds that are exalting in this relationship that they have with each other. In verse uh, 16, it says... Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruit. Chapter 5 continues, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh, my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb, my honey. I have drunk my milk. It's romance. It's imagery. That's what is at the heart of romance. You see, the romantic heart, and God is a romantic. He, he wrote this book. He designed romance. He gave it to us as a gift. He gives and receives love. How? By connecting with our eyes. That's the word, to connect. Stirring imagination with our words. Creating closeness with our time together. The key word in romance in marriage is imagination. God wants us to continue to connect in a romantic way within marriage. It's not supposed to end simply when you say, I do. 
One of the ways we help injured, hurting, damaged couples who want to end their marriage begin afresh is I have them turn to each other after I've listened to their life stories. I say, take, take the hand of your husband or wife. Let's, I want you two to look at each other. And believe it or not, they have trouble looking at each other because they've got a lot of conflict and there's a lot of hurt in their past and there's maybe betrayal and other things. So they, they, they look up, down, over, but looking in the eye of their spouse, even if they've been married, that's, that's difficult. But I go, well, let's just, just play through with me here. Take their hands and I want you to follow me. I'm going to coach you to say a few things. And I'll say first to the husband, I want you to say this to your wife. Look at her, don't look at me. Why look in the eye? Because the eye is the window to the soul, Jesus said. So you look in the eye, you're looking into her heart. I'm so thankful that you came this week. I'm so thankful that God gave you to me as a wife. I think there's the heart of a little girl still inside that got wounded when your parents split up. I think there's a heart of a little girl whose heart was, was, was badly broken. And I wish I had been there to care about you. I wish I had been there to stop it. I would have pleaded with them, please stay together for her sake. She needs you. But what if I every day said, I won't leave you? What if I said, I'm committed to you? What if I said, for the rest of my life, the heart of that precious little girl, that's a heart I want to care about. Would that be okay with you if I did that every day? She starts to get tears. That would be okay. Okay, I want you to say this to your husband. I'm so sorry you grew up without anyone ever telling you you did anything right. You were criticized. You were told you were wrong. You, you never had anyone to say, I believe in you. I'm so sorry that happened to you. I wish I had been there to stop that. I would have said, this, this little boy has what it takes. This young man is destined for great things. But I want to tell you, I believe in you. I care about you. I admire you. I respect you. I'm so thankful that you're my husband. He starts to fight back tears. And you know what? Two people start connecting who've never connected before or in years. What's happening? They're giving and receiving love by connecting with their eyes, using words, creating closeness, time alone together. The key word to remember is imagination. For time's sake, let's move on. The companion heart. In a fulfilling marriage, there has to be companionship. And in Genesis 2, which we've read, 22 to 24, God explains to the very first couple, it's the only premarital advice some say God ever gave is found in Genesis 2. It's quoted there. It's quoted by Matthew 19. It's quoted in Ephesians 5. But he says to this, For Adam no suitable helper was found. He caused him to fall into a deep sleep. The Lord God, I'm skipping around to verse 22 of chapter 2 of Genesis. He made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. God is in the same business, friends. He's still bringing her to the man. 
God is still bringing people together. He still, he hasn't changed. He looked at Adam and he said, it is not good that man be alone. This is before sin entered the world. This isn't because we had a sinful world, now Adam's kind of a mess. No, Adam was created perfectly as God wanted him to be, but he left a, an empty place in Adam's heart that only a woman could fill, a wife. And he brought her to the man. Do you know something? Men need companions. Particularly men need a companion. The companion heart gives and receives love through deep soul ties, becoming best of friends, and showing undying devotion. Undying devotion, the key word there is loyalty to each other. I want to say to the women here today, I'm going to betray the male fraternity and tell you something about us that we wouldn't tell you otherwise. Men, I ask your forgiveness, but it's for a good purpose. Most men are lonely. Most men do not have one close friend, according to studies. Women have all sorts of close friends. Women connect very easily with each other. Relationships seem to come, you know, to, to women just are, are, there's all sorts of reasons why, but women have best friends out of their family or sister or whatever, from their Bible study, the church, other places, where we men struggle to even have one close friend. We have acquaintances and whatever. 75% of women who lose their husband and they become a widow never remarry. 80% of men who lose their wife do remarry and within two years. You know why that is? It's not good that man be alone. Women, women can make it alone. They've got a network, if you will. But we men struggle when we lose our companion. My parents were married 55 years my dear mother died. I asked dad if he was going to remarry. He said, no, I don't think so. And I said, well, you can live with us. No, I'm, I want to live on my own. So that's the way it went. A year later, he calls me up and says, out of the blue, he goes, Bob, I'd like you to marry me. Now, he wasn't asking me to marry him. He was saying, I'd like you to marry me. I said, what? He said, yes, Lois and I are getting married. Now, this is stuff a, a, a church scandal, I guess, could start over. She was my former secretary, so my dad is. Well, they were good friends. They were married. Each couple lost their spouse, so it was all okay, okay. So you know what? At age 80, I, I, this is the only time I ever got to do this. I stood in front of my father, and I said, now repeat after me. <laughs> Never got a chance to do that in all the years of. And he was married for eight or nine years before the Lord called him home. It's not good that men be alone. And the key word is loyalty. Let's go on to the giving heart. There's no fulfilling marriage without a spirit of giving. You know, we serve a giving God. God so loved the world that he what? He gave. The companion heart or excuse me, the giving heart, 1 Corinthians 7. I can just read a little portion of this to you, but in this portion, Paul is talking about how in the 
in the sanctity and holiness of marriage, we are to have a heart of giving toward one another. 1 Corinthians 7, it says this. Uh, let's just read verses 3 to 5 here. Um, it says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband in the same way. The husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Don't deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come back together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Some people are uncomfortable with the idea God is watching my marriage at all times. But let me tell you this, so is Satan. It says don't do certain things. Don't leverage your love for each other to get what you want. He says Satan's going to watch that and he's going to use it. He's going to tempt you. You know something, if Satan is watching my marriage, I want God to be watching it even more. Each and every day I want him to be watching over us. The giving heart gives and receives love by joyfully providing, providing for our spouse's needs. And the key word there is unselfishness. Perhaps you've discovered what Jesus said to be true. It is more blessed to give than to receive in life, in every aspect of our lives. With our money, it is more blessed to give. With our time, with our effort to be unselfish in how we live our lives, there you find life. There you are blessed. It says, give, it will be given to you in great measure, pouring over, spilling into your lap. It was talking about money, but you know, the truth is, that's every area of our life when we have a heart to give. And the key word here is unselfishness. Let's look at the ecstatic heart for a minute, Proverbs 5. This is looking at the talk, if you will, between a, a father and son. It's, it's the birds and the bees, if you will. He's sitting down to talk with his son about his life and about the gift of sexuality. And in chapter 5, let's just read perhaps from, well, let's start with verse 15 of Proverbs chapter 5. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in public squares. Now he's not talking about the water we need um, to hydrate ourselves and stay healthy. He's talking about the longing that God creates into us, a sexual thirst, if you will, that is good and holy and proper that he creates in us. He said there is a way to satisfy this and there is a way not to. He says drink water from your own cistern, meaning from your own well, from your own marriage. Don't let your, your, your life overflow in the streets. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. That word in Hebrew means intoxicated. They translate it captivated. It actually means the same word as to get drunk. But not with alcohol. To get drunk with the love of your spouse. To revel in the relationship that God 
has given you. Two times the Bible says we can get drunk. One is in Ephesians. It says don't get drunk with wine. That's dissipation. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. You can be drunk with the Holy Spirit. That's what they accused the apostles of, wasn't it, on the day of Pentecost? You're drunk. They said, yes, we are, but not with wine. We are drunk with the Holy Spirit who's come down. It's okay. Second is you can be drunk with the love of your wife. God says that's good. Intoxication. The guardian heart. Let's move on to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. This is another heart that we need in marriage. And this is, this is guarding, if you will, our relationship, its holiness, its sanctity, its exclusiveness. In Malachi chapter 2, um, God, God's word says this. Um, let's go back to maybe verse 13, Malachi 2.13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep, wail. He no longer pays attention to your offerings. He doesn't accept them with pleasure. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why did he make him one? Why does he make him one? Surprising answer. Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself and your spirit. Do not break faith with the wife of your youth. The guardian heart gives and receives love by keeping our vows, protecting our oneness, and drawing our children to God, drawing them through our integrity. You know what it says here? It says God wants oneness in marriage. Now why? Is that so you can get along, so life is a little bit easier, so your home is a safe place? Well, probably all of those. But he said, I want you to be one in spirit and flesh in every way so your children will find it easier to believe in me. If you are one, your children will find it so much easier to believe there is a God in heaven who loves them if you two love each other. You see, parents, we are the first Bible our children ever read. We're the first Bible. Before they can put words together, they're reading us. And if we love one another as we are to love one another, and we say, do you know there's a God in heaven who made you? Did you know he sent his son Jesus to die for you? Did you know that he accepts you the way that you are? Do you know that he forgives you when you make mistakes and stumble? Do you know his heart is ever open to you? Well, we all fall short of those types of standards, I will agree, first and foremost. But if our kids have even seen a glimpse of this in us, they're going to go, that's possible. Maybe there is a God who cares about me in this way. The key word is exclusive. We are to keep faith with the wife of our youth. We are to guard our integrity, and the end result will be some unexpected blessings, particularly to our children. I want to end today by admitting something, that these six hearts are really difficult. I'll go further than that. I'll say they're impossible. They're impossible to live out. Well, why, Pastor, would you come and challenge us with something that's impossible? 
That would just frustrate us. Let me finish the sentence. They are impossible without Christ. We have to have Christ living in our hearts. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the key word alone can give us the strength and the willingness and the love to live out the six hearts of intimacy, the gospel. I love reducing things to as simple as I can make them because that's how I learn best. Let's assume that this list is a list of my sins and I'd need more than one page, sadly. I'd need several pages. Okay, I'd need a phone book. Okay, I'd need a, I, I'd need a file cabinet. All right, let me be honest, I'd need a forklift, okay? If I was to bring in all my sins, I'd probably need a forklift because this is a list of them. Now let me show you a list of Christ's sins. This is what it looks like. There isn't one. Not one. Now what is Christianity? Jesus says, what if we exchange this? What if I give you mine and I take yours? Well, well, what are you going to do with mine? There's a lot there. He says, I'm going to nail it to the cross. I'm going to pay for it with my blood. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And it will all be finished. So you mean I get this list? Yeah. Well, I don't deserve this. I know. That's what grace is about, isn't it? It's about the mercy of God. This is your list. And by the way, when you die, should you die before I return, and my heavenly Father says, why should I let you into my heaven? Show me your list. Jesus gave this to me. He said to show it to you. And the Heavenly Father says, welcome into eternity. Welcome into heaven. Isn't that wonderful? Who in the world would turn this down? Like, who would want to live with this list knowing you could have this one? (laughs) I mean, how can you turn down an offer like that, really? Because Jesus says today, You can give me that list. All the mistakes you've made in your marriage, as a single person, all the things you've done, I'll take that list. Give it to me. You know the final words of Jesus on the cross, what they were? It is finished. In Greek, do you know what that means? It means it is paid. It was a business term for paying a debt fully, completely off so that nothing more is owed. And there, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to toss. I, I, don't let me sound like I know more than I do. I mean, I know just enough Greek to be dangerous, okay? But I did study this in the Greek language that, because it is finished, fascinated me. It's in what is called the perfect tense. Now, we have past, present, and future tense. Happened in the past, happened today, happened tomorrow. Greek has eight of those. They got a lot more tense. They're a lot more tense people, okay? They they had a lot of tension in their culture. Okay, they had all these different tenses. 
The perfect tense means it's done to perfection. It means you can't do it any better. It means you can't add a thing to it. You can't take anything from it. It's perfect. And when Jesus said, your sins and mine, it is finished, he meant it. He says it's paid. And there's nothing you or I can do to add a single thing to that because nothing else is needed. We just have to receive it. We just have to say, okay, your list, I'll take it. My list, here, it's yours, good riddance. I'm glad to get rid of all that. So tomorrow you wake up, and maybe you do say or do something that's wrong. You know, they asked one woman who'd been married for years, they said, do you ever wake up ornery, kind of mean, out of sorts? She thought and said, no, I let him sleep. Okay, well, you know, there's tensions. They're covered. Tomorrow's already covered, and so is next week. And, and so was yesterday. And the rest of your life, this is your list. If you place your faith in Christ alone. Now that's good news. And my friends, that's where the power comes from to live out these hearts when you don't feel like living them out. When your strength is gone, when your hope has been badly badly damaged, when your integrity may have even been compromised in some way, or your spouses, this is where you continue on. You, you, you look to the gospel of Jesus Christ who said it is paid. And you say, Lord, would you give me your heart today to love my husband, to love my wife, to love my son or daughter, to love my parents, to love the people I work with, to love the people who are difficult in my world, Lord, would you give me the love? Would you, just, would you just love through me? He says, yes, I will. Yep, that's what I'll do. The Holy Spirit, it says, is shed abroad in our hearts. I want to close by leading you in a prayer here. It's at the bottom of your notes. And I just want to challenge today anyone who doesn't know if they've ever exchanged lists, or today knows you want to. Here's a prayer that will allow you to do that. Dear Jesus, I recognize that I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I understand there's nothing I can do to earn or deserve your salvation. I choose to repent or turn from my unbelief and my sin. I place my faith in the finished it is finished. The finished work of the cross where you, Jesus, shed your blood as payment for my sins. I receive your free gift of eternal life. I confess, that is, I agree with you. You are my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for the gift of eternal life that is now mine. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I'm going to have us bow our heads. Father, today I thank you that you created each of us with a heart to give and receive love. 